Pastors and church planners around the world need your help to receive a confessional Reformed Baptist theological education. Introducing the William Carey Scholarship Fund at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You can help students like Sam in India afford seminary training and Bible software with thousands of critically needed theological books. To learn how you can help, visit cbtseminary.org slash carry. You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. All right, this is, again, History of Preaching and Preachers. This is lecture number 16. We are picking up with talking about preachers of 18th century America and really specifically the preachers of the Great Awakening in America. We really haven't gotten to the end of the 18th century and and, and just won't in the course of this lecture. There's just no way to do it. But we're going to uh, begin by talking about... well really in the course of this lecture, talk about probably three of the best-known preachers uh, that have ever preached on American soil. And the first of those is Jonathan Edwards, uh, the great theologian, the great pastor at Northampton. Uh, And just briefly, I want to look again at the great leaders of the Christian church and just look at that uh, just real quick biographical survey of Edwards. Remember, he lived from 1703 to 1758, so didn't live uh, just a, a extremely long lifespan. Uh, we'll talk later about uh, what um, resulted in his death. But Edwards is a key figure in the intellectual history of New England and of American theology. He's a person of precocious intelligence and a major Calvinist theologian and philosopher. He was converted when he was 17. From the time when he became pastor of the church at Northampton, Massachusetts, until his untimely death from the after-effects of a smallpox injection, he played a dominant role in leading and guiding the Great Awakening and in defending historic Calvinism against the attacks of deists and Arminians, often by using their own intellectual weapons against them. During his ministry at Northampton, Edwards published a large number of sermons and works of practical piety, most notably his religious affections. And of course, he gave us many works uh, that we benefit from uh, to this day, and we're very thankful for Edwards, and not only for his sermons, but for uh, so many of his other published works, which give us such uh, deep and helpful theological insight. Uh, When we talk in our next lecture about 18th century Britain, And we refer to Andrew Fuller. Uh, We talk about Andrew Fuller's theology because he was one of the major uh, Baptist theologians of that century. He was heavily influenced by Edwards, particularly his understanding of natural and moral inability. And if you don't know what natural and moral inability are, I encourage you to look into those subjects because I think they really provide a helpful insight into understanding what we can and cannot do as people who are lost. And I think it makes very clear the the reason that we must have regeneration uh, before we can be saved. Now, um, 
Edwards was born just a few miles north of Hartford, Connecticut, and his father was a congregational pastor, uh, so you know he would have been very familiar with what was involved in that role you know, from boyhood. His mother's father, or his grandfather, was Solomon Stoddard. We've talked about him. He was a particularly influential pastor in Northampton. Of course, he was the pastor at the church that Edward, Edwards would once, uh, one day uh, assume the pastor of himself, leader, leader of himself. Now, Jonathan's father arranged the living room of his parsonage into a schoolroom where he trained his 11 children. But as if that weren't enough, he also trained the other village boys who desired to go to college. And so again, we see that, that pattern that we talked about a few minutes ago, that um, very often when you have a respected, knowledgeable uh, minister who lived in the community, in the village, many times if you have an aspiring young person who wants to go to college, who shows intellectual ability, who shows an interest and, and, and just has the um, wherewithal to be able to do that, then often they would go and spend time with or even sometimes live with this minister and receive just basic fundamental educational training so that that would help them along in their studies. So that was a common practice. Now, Edwards was able to read Latin by age seven, bless his heart, and even teach it in his father's absence to his younger sisters. He entered the collegiate school, which later became known as Yale, at age 13. Following his graduation from college, Edwards studied theology for two years and then began to supply at a small Scottish Presbyterian congregation. Of course, he was not Presbyterian himself. He was congregational, but um, they probably, being small, needed someone to preach regularly, and he was agreeable to do that for them for just a short period of time and uh, I think it was only six or eight months that he was there. And then from 1724 to 26, he was a tutor at Yale and was able to continue to be around uh, academia and read and study and uh, further educate himself. At age 24, he was ordained and became assistant to his grandfather, Sol Solomon Stoddard, in Northampton at the Congregationalist Congregation. Two years later, Stoddard passed away, and Edwards succeeded him uh, as the uh, pastoral leader in that church. Northampton was essentially a simple frontier village at the time, and the congregation numbered about 600 members when Edwards began his ministry. Now, Edwards was not the greatest communicator in the world. He read his sermons from a manuscript so that means probably far more often than not you would see more of the top of his head than you would see his face because he's, he's looking at his sermons. Apparently they were only on small pieces of paper, about four inches square, and he had remarkably small handwriting, so he would have had to have really gotten close to them to be able to read them. But even so, even with all those difficulties, even with being anchored to this manuscript and not only looking down at it, which means your voice is not going to project. Of course, there was no sound equipment then to give him any aid like that. Even so, even with all those difficulties, nevertheless, his superior intelligence and education were quickly appreciated, and the meeting house became crowded with listeners. In fact, over 300 new members were added in the first six months of his ministry. Uh, so... Uh, really able to do his grandfather proud 
in, uh, in his leadership of this congregation. Now, within five years, in 1734, Edwards was at the pinnacle of his popularity with the church, and his fame uh, began to spread throughout all of New England. His fame as a pastoral leader and as preacher, theologian. I mean, he was so popular there, but his, his fame, his reputation, awareness of him and his abilities spread rapidly throughout the whole New England territory. I want to um, look at, well, let's see, it's Weber, isn't it? Description of one of his sermons. Now, we know, we, we know several things about Edward's sermons. In fact, uh, even in recent years, some of his sermons have come to light, and, and we have found more of his sermons, or we've been able to, to reconstruct more of his messages to be able to publish. I mean, even while I was at seminary, I know there was a collection of a couple of his sermons that were released that had never been published before. So uh, I know that there are uh, you know, recent additions to his corpus of material still uh, available today. But in his sermon, The Justice of God and the Condemnation of Sinners, which is a very long uh, message, uh, taking Romans 3.19 as its text, uh, he says some of these things in the course of the sermon. I, I, I just, again, just you have to, this is not altogether unlike sinners in the hands of an angry God, although it's not the same message. Edward says, In the improvement of this doctrine, I would chiefly direct myself to sinners who are afraid of damnation with a view to their conviction. This may be a matter of conviction to you, that it would be just and righteous with God eternally to reject and destroy you. This is what you are in danger of. You who are a Christless sinner and a poor condemned creature, God's wrath still abides on you. And the sentence of condemnation lies upon you. You are in God's hands, and it is uncertain what he will do with you. You are afraid what will become of you. You are afraid that it will be your portion to suffer eternal burnings, and your fears are not without grounds. You have reason to tremble every moment. But be you ever so much afraid of it, let eternal damnation be ever so dreadful, yet it is just." God may nevertheless do it and be righteous and holy and glorious, though eternal damnation be what you cannot bear, and how much soever your heart shrinks at the thoughts of it, yet God's justice may be glorious in it. The dreadfulness of the thing on your part and the greatness of your dread of it do not render it the less righteous on God's part. If you think otherwise, it is a sign that you do not see yourself, that you are not sensible what sin is or how much of it you've been guilty of. Therefore, for your conviction, be directed. And his people had to endure sermons of that caliber and, and of that general type on a regular basis. And they lasted a lot longer than those few seconds did. <clears throat> Now, Edwards' Calvinism was very, very influential upon America. Again, we know he wrote a lot, and even uh, after he was already uh, buried, nevertheless, his published works continued to influence and instruct and help uh, many theologians, even for years, decades, and centuries to come. Whitfield, George Whitfield, visited Jonathan Edwards, preached for him, and encouraged him to relinquish his manuscripts. Uh, Whitfield knew the power of 
the freedom of being able to look your congregation in the eye and see what they're thinking, see what kind of emotions are forming on their, on their countenances. He knew how important it was to be able to, to, to move away from the anchored position of reading a manuscript and to look your congregation face to face. So he encouraged him to let go of those manuscripts. Jonathan, let them go. And in return, Edwards influenced Whitfield. Uh, resulting in a deeper confidence and conviction regarding Calvinism. Now, Whitfield was already a Calvinist, but uh, Edwards helped to reinforce and strengthen those convictions uh, and so made him even more of uh, a fervent, uh, fervent Calvinist uh, in his preaching and in his theology. <clears throat> Remember, theology was Edwards' strong point. Preaching was Whitfield's strong point. Okay. Whitfield was not particularly a theologian, uh, and Edwards, as we've said, was not a great preacher in the sense of not resonating uh, with the people on the level of, of Whitfield. Nevertheless, he did uh, benefit his people greatly uh, in the time in which he served his church. Now, Edwards' famous sermon, probably his most famous sermon, centers in the hands of an angry God was preached to his own congregation and again at Enfield, Connecticut in 1741. That sermon, if you haven't read it, if you've never seen it, it contains vivid imagery of hell, and it is Edward's most famous written work. Now, he desired for his audience to consider the horrific reality that awaited them should they continue on without Christ. He preached this message at Enfield... In other words, not his home church, but at Enfield, because it remained largely unaffected during the Great Awakening. That church didn't really see a lot of change, didn't really see a lot of increased holiness and greater repentance and so forth. It just seemingly remained as it was. So the pastor invited Edwards to come and preach the sermon to them. Edwards concludes with, Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. And this is a leading example of a Great Awakening sermon and is still read and studied regularly. Now, I attended a, a small, uh, independent Baptist-affiliated Christian school when I was in uh, elementary and high school. And somewhere in there, around the 7th or 8th grade, we were assigned to read uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I still remember some of the imagery that, that Edwards created in the course of that sermon. Uh, so it has lingered with me for several years now. Uh, so I encourage you to, to look at that again if you haven't lately or never have at all. Now, Edward's popularity coincided with the numerical growth of his church. And uh, as it swelled, uh, they had to build a new meeting house, and they did that in 1736 and 37. The people eventually grew tired of him, however, Weber asserts that Edwards either preached all law and little gospel or preached in such a way that the gospel was less evident than the law. Now, I, again, I, as I said before, I have noticed that Weber, as a historical commentator on preaching, sometimes um, takes his side a little bit against uh, preachers who are Calvinistic. He sometimes takes sides against preachers who are preaching you know, more wrath or hellfire and brimstone, that type of thing, uh, than he does against others. And I'm not saying that he's right or wrong here. I'm just saying that sometimes he does that, so we have to be careful in how we interpret what he has to say. So that's why I put his name here. But even so, 
Edwards had also been accused of some extravagance and was forced to provide a public accounting of his expenditures. Uh, They thought perhaps he had uh, been using some of the church's monies uh, in, uh, in a way that was inappropriate. As well, Edwards had admonished the young people not to read certain popular but harmful books. Uh, there, there was some literature available at that time that uh, the younger people in the church were very eager to read. It was very popular. It was the in thing to do. And yet he knew that they were harmful publications. He knew that they were not going to in any way promote their holiness or their spirituality. And so he railed against those things and uh, wasn't the least bit concerned uh, about harming the feelings of these younger people. And uh, they, they did not take well to that, some of them. And so some felt like that was a factor in uh, the church's ultimate rejection of Edwards. But perhaps the most grievous complaint was Edwards' suspension of communion, finally, for those in the parish of the halfway covenant. Stoddard, his grandfather, had permitted them, people in the halfway covenant arrangement, to receive communion, and he baptized their children. But Edwards had done the same thing. He'd followed suit for some years himself. You know, he sort of kept the status quo. But he finally felt that that was wrong. His convictions changed, and as a result, he suddenly and without much warning at all just said, no, uh, those in the halfway covenant cannot be involved uh, in receiving communion. We're not going to involve you in the ordinances of the church. Um, you know, we, we just don't, um, you know, appreciate, you know, your external commitment. We, we want a full-blown, full-hearted commitment from you to the Lord. That's what we want to see in your life and in your testimony. So the congregation was greatly offended, and a great and long-standing controversy arose. In fact, some authors even say that, that to some extent or other that still exists today, some of the fallout from this controversy over the halfway covenant. So in June 1750, right in the very middle of the 18th century, there were 230 male members who voted to dismiss Edwards from the Northampton congregation. 23 voted against his dismissal. So it is strange that the most famous clergyman of colonial days was dismissed by his own congregation after having served them for 23 years. Edwards was forbidden ever to preach again within the borders of their village. So very sad and unfortunate uh, turn of events, but, you know, about a century later and an ocean away, just think about Charles Spurgeon. He had uh, similarities of his own to, to encounter there. We'll talk about them, Lord willing, in days ahead. So, in the succeeding years, after his dismissal from Northampton, Edwards served as a missionary to the uh, Housatonic Indians, spending seven years among them. We haven't said anything about David Brainerd, but we know that Edwards was very moved and influenced by the life and ministry, short as it was, of David Brainerd. And I wouldn't, uh, I haven't looked deeply into it uh, for this lecture, but I wouldn't at least the least bit be surprised if his work among the Indians uh, prompted him to take up this ministry uh, and minister to these Indians for some seven years. In 1757, he became the president of Princeton, succeeding his son-in-law, Aaron Burr. But this was only a short 
brief presidency because uh, at the age of 55, uh, he died uh, of an infection resulting from his vaccination against smallpox. So he was only there for a couple of years as president of Princeton before this uh, unfortunate turn of events um, resulted in his death. But he was vaccinated against smallpox and as a result developed an infection and that uh, took his life. So uh, again, Jonathan Edwards, without question, the greatest, uh, in my opinion at least, the greatest theologian uh, that American soil has ever produced, uh, exceedingly influential in terms of theology and preaching, bringing about the Great Awakening. While he may not have been personally the very you know primary leader of it or the the, the first stimulus of it, thinking about Tennant or or others who might have been involved. Nevertheless, um, he certainly was at the very forefront of the of the movement and certainly helped to uh, continue its momentum forward uh, in the course of time that it ran. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.